Well, hello there, happy innovators. How are y'all doing today, huh? Are you having a good week? I hope you're having a good week. Getting ready for your weekend and ready to have some fun, maybe? Hmm? Hmm? You know, as you know, I live in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, we got Thanksgiving holiday coming up here in America. And the story of Thanksgiving in America really is kind of centered around this idea of the pilgrims, you know, the Puritans that settled here in Massachusetts. And uh, I think it was back in 1620, right? Plymouth Rock and all that. And um, at the center of the Thanksgiving holiday is a feast. And at the center of that feast is turkey, you know, the bird, turkey. Um, kind of like a chicken, you know, <laughs> just a hell of a lot bigger. And let me tell you, they're huge. Okay. These animals are huge. And, you know, it's no surprise to me that, uh, the pilgrims were eating turkey because I'll tell you what, even to this day, okay, here in Massachusetts, there are turkeys everywhere. I mean, they are everywhere. I mean, on any given day, um, I'll have at least, you know, one gaggle of turkeys walk through my property, okay? And lately, it's been just off the chain. I had like 50 turkeys in my yard the other day. 50 turkeys. And there were maybe like seven males and the rest were females. And, you know, the, the males when they feel threatened or whatever, like when I'm looking at them out the window, they raise their feathers, you know, like to appear bigger or something. I think that's the idea. And, um, you know, it doesn't work. I mean, <laughs> it's just a turkey with its feathers spread out, you know. I guess there's poetry in that, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so I just think it's really funny that, you know, they're in their cabins back in the day, you know, back in 1620, that harsh winter of 1620 was getting underway and, you know, they needed something to eat and they just go outside and nail a turkey. You know, there's about four million of them running around. It's not really hard to catch one, you know, and uh, of course, you know, to this day, it's a tradition and everything, but. I still think it's funny that there are just so many turkeys running around. You know, it's hilarious. Oh, anyway, I don't have too much time to talk today because I have a lot of stuff to do. But I did want to make a declaration today. And it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, I guess. Maybe, uh, you know, the spirit of playfulness or something. But kind of not really, okay? Um, maybe for the past year or so, I've been, like, every once in a while watching this concert video from Jeff Lynn's ELO, you know, Electric Light Orchestra. And I think that I've talked about it before in podcasts. I, I'm almost certain I have. And it doesn't surprise me because this concert with ELO at Wembley Stadium, uh, I'm convinced, okay, is probably the best live recording I've ever heard, okay, it's probably the best live performance that I've ever seen filmed, okay? And there's no question at this point that, you know, there are many songs by Electric Light Orchestra 
that are simply brilliant. I mean, they're just amazingly written songs. Okay, so my declaration for today, and this could change in the future, it might, hopefully it will, but um, as of today's date, which is November 21st, 2019, okay, I hereby declare, in my arrogant opinion, okay, that Electric Light Orchestra is probably the greatest band that's ever existed. I'm pretty sure. And I've thought about this a lot. Like I said, I've been watching this concert video for like a year. And I've always liked ELO. And I've always liked Jeff Lynne. I mean, I like the stuff that he produced for Tom Petty. I mean, I love what he does. But what's more important than that is that before his assassination, John Lennon did actually say that he believed that if the Beatles had continued they would have sounded a lot like Electric Light Orchestra. Like, that was the direction they probably would have went in. And, you know, getting an endorsement from John Lennon, you know, when you're just, like, a young guy, because I think Jeff Lynn was, like, 21 or 22 years old or something when he got that endorsement from, you know, John Lennon and the Beatles, you know? Um, wow. I mean, when I was 21, I was still trying to figure out what was up from down and... I didn't know my ass from page eight, you know, but this guy was producing and working in the studio with the Beatles. I mean, my gosh, what a genius, right? He, he is. He is. In my opinion, I just I, I try to think of another band that has written better songs, as many songs as he has, you know, that are just fantastic. I mean, there isn't anybody else that I can think of that puts that much in you know, to their songwriting and their production. I mean, this guy was light years ahead of the curve back in the 70s and the 80s, you know? And when you see him play now, you know, he hasn't lost anything. He hasn't lost his voice. He hasn't lost his hair, you know? Uh, he still plays great. And, you know, another thing too, and I really kind of thought about this last night because I watched the concert again last night. And um, the people that are behind him on stage at Wembley Stadium, you know, like there's not a joker on that stage anywhere. You know, if you're on stage with Jeff Lynn playing Wembley Stadium, you are at the top of your game, you know, regardless of what it is you do. If you're a backup singer, you're a drummer, you're a guitar player. I mean, you watch this concert and you can see that the people on stage are all different ages. You know, they have, you know, different kind of like styles and fashion sense. And, you know, but they're all on stage together, you know, probably from like age 20 to age 65. You know, these people, because there's men and women, okay? There's men and women on the stage. And all of them are amazing musicians, okay? And the songs performed at Wembley Stadium in this concert, you know, having been recorded with modern recording equipment, you know, spare no expense production, right? Uh, they sound better. They actually sound better than the album, the original album versions of these songs. 
I mean, um, can you imagine that? It's just so amazing. Uh, to me, I, I watch it and I just, each time I watch it, I think I like it more. You know, I think I'm more impressed with it. And you know what else I love, okay, about Electric Light Orchestra performing live at Wembley Stadium is that the audience reaction is so different than what I'm used to when I go to see a concert for a band that's maybe a little more contemporary, okay? Um, you know, you go to see a band now and it's like there might be a mosh pit, you know, there's people that are excited and they're, you know, maybe aggressive and, you know, just having fun, letting loose. But when you watch this Electric Light Orchestra concert, the audience is actually kind of like crying tears of joy. Like they're emotional because these songs are like the soundtrack to their lives. And you have older people, you know, gray hair that are in the audience and they are crying tears of joy, you know, hearing telephone line, you know, or Rockeria or um, Mr. Blue Sky. You know, these people are genuinely happy and filled with joy at this concert. And, I, you know, I'm watching it on the screen, but it just jumps on me. You know, I can just feel it too. You know, it's amazing. I can't think of any other band that really can do it that way and at that level. And I know that a lot of people are going to disagree with me. A lot of people may not really like Electric Light Orchestra or Jeff Lynne or any of that, right? But I don't care because I know what I see and I know what I'm hearing, okay? And as much as I'd like to think I have an idea of what it takes to put on a performance on that level, I really don't, okay? I don't, and I probably never will because you have to play at that level in order to really be successful at that level. And, you know, come on, how many people can sell out Wembley Stadium three or four nights in a row? Sold out. No more tickets left. It's stunning to me. It's shocking to me. And you know what? It's worth dedicating a Singularity podcast to it because, man... Listen to the music, watch the concert for yourself, and tell me what you think. You know, I just, I am so overwhelmingly impressed with that concert and those songs and the way they're written, the structure and the instrumentation, the arrangements. It's just so well done. Okay, so there you go. There's my declaration for November 21st, 2019. I really do think that Electric Light Orchestra is probably the greatest rock band or pop band that has ever been and probably ever will be. Okay? My opinion, I mean, I like Queen, I like Bowie, I like Pink Floyd, I like them all. I like Genesis too, you know? The Rolling Stones and the Beatles, I love them all. But I just don't think that any of them really put it together like Jeff Lynne did. Of course, he had the opportunity to stand on their shoulders, right? Didn't he? 
didn't he? So he can't take all the credit. And there's no question when you listen to electric light orchestras, songs that, you know, they are very Beatlesque. It's there. You can hear it. But it's not a ripoff. It's like a continuation. They were like the heir apparent to that crown, right? That Beatles crown. So feel free to leave your opinions in the comment section. I can hear it already. You know, a lot of people are going to disagree, but some of you, okay, some of you out there are going to agree with me, especially after you watch that concert. So anyway, like I said, I can't talk today as much as I'd like to. I have a lot of stuff that I got to do and I'm already behind schedule, but I'm going to take a sip of my coffee and one more sip. Oh my gosh. Coffee. I love coffee. I hereby declare that coffee is my favorite drink. Anyway, um, all right, so here's the plan, Stan. This is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to give you another Snowflake 33 podcast at the end of this one to kind of like compensate and make up for the time that I'm not going to spend sitting here in front of the mic talking today. So forgive me. My schedule is really busy today, um, but I wanted to give you something rather than nothing. So uh I'm going to leave it here, folks. I got to go, but uh, stick around until after the end of this podcast and you'll get a nice, healthy little chunk of talking and music and stuff for your entertainment. OK, um, so for now, this is Mike Bostwick from Pipe Choir Records signing off. And remember, folks, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy. Okay, all you happy innovators that stuck it out and braved it through all the way to the end of this podcast today to hear uh, what I have for you today. And what I'm going to give you is the description of the PC3 Ad Astra 3 compact disc that I made. Um, For those of you that enjoy the PC3 music, it'll give you an opportunity to kind of check out my thinking and my process a little bit at the time that I was releasing the PC3 Ad Astra 3 CD. Um, So here it is, uh, the Snowflake 33 episode. Man, I forget what number it was. It was like four or five, way back in the day when I first started. And um, I made this podcast for the PC3 Ad Astra 3 compact disc, uh, the description, on the day that I was releasing the CD. So um, without further ado... Here it is, the Snowflake 33 PC3 Ad Astra 3 compact disc description. Take it easy, everybody. Have a good weekend. Behave. Have fun. Be safe. Peace.
Hello there, everybody, and welcome to Snowflake 33. My name is Mike Bostwick, and I'm the owner of Pipe Choir Records. Today, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a new CD that I've released. Um, it's PC3's Ad Astra 3, and uh, originally I wanted to start in numerical order and go from Ad Astra 1 to 2 to 3, but I decided, because the album is new and it needs all the push that it can get, that I would start with Ad Astra 3. Um, so I hope you don't mind if I just talk about it a little bit. Now, the album Ad Astra 3, uh, if I were to talk about it, which I'm about to, I would have to premise the whole description of the album uh, by telling you a story first that kind of informed the album, at least conceptually, to me. Um, okay, so back in 2011... Uh, my wife and I survived a tornado. And it was a major tornado. It was an F3. And we, we had been through tornadoes before uh, two other times. This was the third one. And it was unlike anything else that we had experienced before. Now, something that I would like to uh, explain about myself really quick before I continue with the story uh, is that I've always been a proponent of extreme weather. I love extreme weather. Uh, it's very exhilarating to me, and it inspires me, and uh, it just electrifies me. It wakes me up. It's fun to me. But with this storm, the damage was so severe and so complete that it was shocking. It was just going to familiar places and all the places, the areas that we, we knew and we recognized and just seeing how much damage there was. I mean, the place was gone. It was erased. And, um, I'm, and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it was really incredible. And after the storm, while we were driving around, kind of surveying the damage of this area that we lived in, uh, and there were, you know, there was debris everywhere. There was pieces of houses everywhere. And, there were these huge trees. I mean, not tipped over, but like literally snapped in half. I mean, they weren't they weren't pushed over. They weren't leaning. They were they were literally broken. And it was I mean, it was it was incredible to to see. But it was also kind of sad at the same time. Also something that I should say really quick that's worth noting is that after the storm, the power was down for like a week, maybe even more than that. I mean, it was it was uh, it was a serious crisis. I mean, think about it: no power for a week. I mean, that means no showers, no cooking, uh, no air conditioning, 
uh, I mean, we were we were Amish for uh, a, a, at least a solid week. Think about it. Anyway, now after the storm, uh, we were driving around the area, kind of trying to survey uh, exactly the the scope and the, the level of damage that had taken place. And as we were driving down the road, I noticed that there was this sagging power line uh, hanging across the street and resting right on top of that wire, that sagging wire, uh, was a rather large piece of a tree branch that had flown through the air and landed uh, right on this wire. And it was resting there. It was kind of just teetering. And as soon as I saw that, I said to my wife, like, wow, I mean, look at that. Just just look at that image right there. It perfectly summed up uh, this entire event. And I knew as soon as I saw that, that it was going to be something that I would use in the future, probably for an album cover or something but I knew that it was going to be something that I used somewhere down the line. Now, uh, when you look at the CD um, at Astra 3, when you look at the cover art, um, you'll see a a triangle. That's the first thing you see. And uh, to cover that really quick, on the first two Ad Astra CDs that are all part of this series, it's three CDs in the series. Uh, the first one has a square on the front. The second one has a circle. And so sticking with the basic shapes theme, I decided that for Ad Astra 3, it would be cool to use a, probably like a triangle because it has three points and it's the third album and probably the final installment in the uh, Ad Astra series. I'm not quite sure, but I'm pretty sure it's the last one. Um, And then inside that triangle, I put that image of that sagging wire with the tree branch. So, and with the stormy clouds behind it and everything. And I thought that it was a perfect, um, a perfect image and a perfect design for what you were about to listen to because this tornado back in 2011 is really what informed all practically all of the material that you are going to hear on the album so having said that um, we've covered the we have covered the cover so now you have the booklet and you open it up and what I decided to put in there was a photograph that I had taken. Now after the storm I had the foresight to go outside with a camera maybe three days after the storm, a couple days, probably three days after the storm. Three. And uh, I snapped a lot of pictures and uh, I documented as much as I could And when I was assembling at Astra 3, I had chosen two of those pictures uh, to be uh, candidates for the inside booklet. And I picked the one that I put in there just because I thought it was a little bit better. But it could have just as easily 
been the other picture. And in this picture that takes up the entirety of the inside of the CD booklet, um, you see a area that uh, I, I jumped out of the car, snapped a picture, and it's only a small little area that's you know actually in the frame of the picture. But this picture is an accurate representation of what the entire area looked like after this storm came through. So when you when you open up the booklet and you see the picture, it will probably be very clear to everyone who sees it exactly what I'm talking about here when I say that this storm was really bad. Um, uh, really quick, I guess I can mention that um, I, I had made uh, Ad Astro 1 and Ad Astro 2, and, I, and they have kind of a similar... All, all three CDs have kind of a similar format. Um, the cover art is similar. The interior of each one is similar. Uh, you know, everything is kind of like the same. And I thought that was cool, like up until Ad Astra 2. And it was, by then it was kind of too late to change my mind about cover art and things like that. So um, I decided what I would do, instead of putting the track list on the backside of the booklet like I had with the previous two CDs that instead this time just to try to make it a little bit different I would put a poem there that I wrote instead and what's what's cool about the poem is that I wrote it if, if I can remember correctly I wrote it like maybe three or four days before the storm came and you know there was kind of like severe weather for the, a week or so prior to the storm, and then this storm came, and it was just the, the, you know, the granddaddy of them all. I mean, it was really intense. Um, so I wrote this poem. I won't read it to you because, you know, it would, in my opinion, that's kind of lame. But um, that's why there's a poem there instead of the track list on the back of the booklet. I was, I was trying to be creative and break out a little bit from that format that I had established for myself with the first two CDs. Um, I guess that's one of the good things about doing this kind of stuff is you make your own rules, so uh, I can break them too. Um, now, with the CD, the actual CD uh, disc face, uh, you'll see a, re a repeat of that branch hanging on the wire theme, and I, I did that just because I was so happy to be able to use that image. I thought that was just really cool. Now, let's see. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll talk about the music now. There's, there's, there's some cool stuff there, I suppose. Um, a, a Warn Signal. Okay, uh, let's see. The title, A Warn Signal. Uh, not to be confused with the other piece of music I released called A Warm Signal. Uh, a Warn Signal was a name that I had a very hard time coming up with and it took me about three months literally three months to come up with a name for this very short piece of music I mean I knew it was going to be the leadoff piece for the album it was going to kind of uh, set the tone for the listener and the title is very important to, at least to me so um, 
for months I would write out lists of songs just brainstorming any idea that came to mind and you know I thought I had some pretty clever ones and I, I would kind of show them to my wife and she would be like no 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 that's lame no and uh so ultimately in the end uh, after months of frustration one day my wife says to me uh what about a warn signal you know like an like a warning signal you know and <laughs> i like grabbed her and i kissed her and i was like thank you thank you for coming up with a name for this song and ending this you know this stupid conundrum that i'm in uh, because it's highly, highly unusual for me to not be able to come up with a name for something. I mean, what, to me, one of the funnest things about making music or art or anything like that is getting to name this stuff. And the fact that I couldn't come up with something, when I think about it now, it's like, I don't even know what was going on because, wow, I mean, it's it just took so long. It was like the, the longest pro- naming process in my entire music career. I mean, normally I have a name before something's even finished. I know what I'm going to call it. And this one was just not, it was not that way. Um, So my wife technically named that song. Um, The music for A Warrant Signal, there's a little bit of a story there, I guess. Uh, What I remember is that um, I had made a piece of music a long time ago for a pipe choir album that I was working on at the time and one that I'm currently working on right now, trying to uh, finish it and complete it. And the opening track for that CD was this piece of music that I had made called After Lifetime. That was what I was going to call it. And um, I released that song and a couple of other songs online just to kind of send them up as a test balloon. And uh, no one really cared. So I took those songs down and I uh, put them away. And then when it came time to start assembling the uh, the track list for Ad Astra 3, I remembered, like, well, I, w- I knew I wanted to have a piece of music, like I said, that would kind of uh, guide the listener into this theme and kind of set the tone for what you were going to hear. And I, I was going to write a new piece of music. And then I remembered that I had this piece from back, you know, back in, I don't even remember now, maybe 2012. And I remembered that it had a very lofty, windy kind of feel to it and uh, would tie into this whole uh, Ad Astra 3 wind tornado theme. And uh, so what I did was I I called the session back up into my system and uh, edited the vocals out. And what I wanted to switch it up with was a broadcast message from the emergency broadcasting system. Uh, a storm warning, you know, uh, there's a storm coming, you know, severe thunder is reported, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I figured that for that tornado that came through our area, there probably was uh, somewhere the actual recording of that message. And my wife and I both looked everywhere that we could think of. Uh, we scoured the internet trying to find this sample of this message and we just could not find it anywhere. But what we could find was 
the transcript from the actual broadcast the day that that storm came through our area. So uh, what I had to do was read the warning myself and try to simulate as closely as I could uh, you know what a storm warning would sound like. So I had a recording of a uh, you know a, a warning signal, a broadcast warning, and I tried to match my voice up as closely as I could. I had to deteriorate the sound and kind of play around with it for a little while, but I think I managed to pull that off pretty good. So when you hear that warning signal, that's my voice. It's not the actual warning from the emergency broadcasting system. Um, but I, I put it on top of that music, and I thought, wow, that, that works. It's what I had in mind. It definitely uh, takes the person who's pressing play, and the, and the CD starts it. It definitely sets the mood. It sets the tone. It kind of informs you of like what's coming, that, there's, that, that, that the storm is coming. And uh, as the album progresses, you, you know, it, it would crescendo to this storm kind of the, the height of the storm which I thought was kind of a cool uh, kind of theme and kind of thing to play with you know um, <clears throat> okay. something that I wanted to share with you really quick and I'm not even really sure how important it is that I share this with you but I'm just going to go right ahead and say it anyway like in the spirit of uh, of fun and uh, um, explanation um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna go right ahead and say it anyway um, when I listen to any of my music and especially for the sake of this conversation I'll use Ad Astra 3 as an example um, you already know there was the story of the storm that happened back in 2011 and I've explained to you how it's been rolled into this narrative now it's an artistic theme okay so yes there was a storm yes it really happened and you can put your finger on it this is what this is about the second level that my music functions on to me is the technical level Okay, and by saying the technical level, what I mean is, uh, you know, what words am I saying? What are the lyrics? Uh, how many times do I do something in a song? Uh, where does something start and where does something stop? Um, the the performance on the instruments and all of those kinds of things make up like the technical aspect of what I've done. And so you have those two. You have the temporal, which would be the literal meaning, like the, the easy-to-grasp concept. Like, here is what this is. It's a storm. The second is the technical. This is how the music was executed. This is what I'm actually saying. And then there's the metaphorical, which is a little bit more abstract and a slight bit more uh, subjective but uh, with this storm it does serve as a metaphor for an entirely separate set of events 
that were more emotional in nature. Um, my, my personal uh, experience um, separate from the storm and separate from the technical. So when I listen to something like Ad Astra 3 or any of my music for that matter, um, I can I consider it a success to myself when it's functioning very well on all three of those levels simultaneously. Um, and I, I hope that I don't sound like too much of a wiener, you know, saying that, but um, I just kind of figured that I would share that with you. I'm not sure whether I needed to, but it's a three-pronged delivery. Just saying. So, let's see. That was a warm, a worn signal. Um, I'm trying to think if I remember anything else about that song. I just don't. Okay, so uh, maybe if I think of things in the future or something, if people do actually enjoy this little thing I'm doing here, uh, maybe I'll amend these somehow and give you more information. But um, we'll just see how see how that goes. Anyway, so a worn signal fades out, and um, then the song, the it's actually kind of like a the main title, and then I have four subtitles underneath it. Um, so it fades into track number two, which is when the wind comes. And um, really quick, I can talk to you a little bit about when the wind comes. Let me see. I'll say uh, the title comes from uh, another song that I had that I'd written a, lo- a while ago. It was called uh, The Sun in the Sky. It was like a, a sketch kind of idea that I did. I'll probably play a little bit of that for you right here. was a pretty pretty good song it was pretty decent but it was just one of those songs that I, I just didn't go back to and didn't finish I moved on to something else and I have a lot of songs like that that are kind of they're not vaulted but they're kind of like they have merit but I I moved on to something else that had more merit so I have this sl- like small collection of music that you know hasn't been heard yet and and I don't have any problem drawing from those things. 
and pulling them into something that's maybe better or I'm working on currently. And in this case, that's what happened. Um, so I, I had started, you know, I, I had sat down uh, to write what would become When the Wind Comes. And uh, I knew a few things when I started. Well, one, I knew I wanted to do a new PC3 song. And at this point, I had done a lot of, uh, you know, longer pieces. I think the, the standard length I was kind of shooting for was like 20 minutes, 22 minutes, because that's what people really wanted to hear from me. So, okay, I'll, that's what I'll do, you know. And then I figured, well, if people like a 20-minute song, they may like a song that's 45 minutes long. Like, if I started to go past the 20-minute mark. So, when I sat down to do uh, When the Wind Comes, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. It was going to be 45 minutes long. Um, uh, come hell or high water. You know, it was kind of like pushing myself. That's a, that's a, lot, of, a lot of space to fill. Uh, with new music and new ideas it's a lot of tracks <laughs> you know a lot of work but um, I wanted to do that and I think the working title I had at first for the song was Eruption Lights that's what I decided to call it I knew I wanted it to have some kind of like a bombast almost or some kind of I wanted it to be that kind of thing so the working title was Eruption Lights and I grab the, you know, uh, well, no, okay, I didn't grab anything. What happened was uh, I started the process of recording, you know, you just start going. And I got a really strong, like, bed of music going. Probably took me about a week or so to kind of, like, get the, the, the bass down, the framework down. And then normally what I'll do around that time is start... Uh, scatting vocals over the music and uh, you know you sing with your soul first you know you're not saying words you're saying you're making noises with your mouth you know you're you know you're, you're singing with your soul first and then you sing with your brain later you know uh, that's not my quote that was a quote from a, a very very intelligent person and a little bit of advice that I picked up over the years and I've always remembered it and I carried over into my own work um so that's what i did and and while i was scatting those vocals while those while those sounds were coming out this song from back in the day called the, the sun in the sky started to come out of my mouth so i'm like okay it fits over this music okay it was it was a decent song then i'll just pull it into this and make it even better so in that song that's where the phrase uh, when the wind comes I say it in that in those lyrics, and I decided to not call this piece "Eruption Lights" or "The Sun in the Sky." I decided to call it "When the Wind Comes" because it would tie into this whole storm story, the story of this tornado that I'm trying to tell. Um, and that's what I so that's what I did. Um, hmm. Let's see, is there anything else I want to say about "When the Wind Comes"? Oh, you know what? I'll say this about that song, and. Uh, I guess it, it's a little bit of trivial information, you know, it doesn't really matter, but um, it's kind of cool in the sense that, you know, I'll just explain it. Okay, there's a movie called The Sixth Sense, and I'm sure that everyone who's hearing this knows the movie and knows what I'm talking about. If not, then, wow, that's, that's amazing. 
but uh, it was a very good movie and all that, and and I, I I enjoyed the movie. And there's a one particular scene in that movie that uh, really kind of always stood out to me, and, and it was the the scene where the mother and the son, the star of the movie, are at the grocery store or something, and he's in the shopping cart, and she starts to push him and his arms go up and his head goes back and he closes his eyes and he's like for the only time really in the movie this in this in this horrible scary story about this little boy who's suffering so much there's this little moment of joy you know and yeah the rest of the movie was great and everything but the part that really stuck out in my mind and in my memory was that image it was probably maybe 10 seconds long but uh the cool part about that is that that was enough to kind of inspire a 45 minute song like it was enough to kind of like that was what i was trying to capture you know uh not just the story of the tornado but just like that that idea that you know he like uh he could be free for just a moment he could be free and his eyes were closed and his, he raised his arms and that's what I'm singing about in that song um, in hindsight it's really kind of what I've put together in my mind having seen the movie not too long ago and I, rem- I remembered oh yeah that's right that was in there I should probably uh, mention that somewhere down the line so that's when the wind comes now, uh, let's see, When the Wind Comes originally, like I said, was 45 minutes. And when I recorded it originally and I released it, um, I wanted to go for the 45-minute thing, and that was cool and great and everything. I accomplished that, finished. But one of the things that really irritated me about it after it was finished was uh, the fact that that song is actually four different songs, like four separate sections that are all merged into one 45-minute piece. And sometimes I just wanted to hear the third part, or I just wanted to hear the second part and then hear the fourth part. Like, you know, like skip, you know? And uh, if I wanted to do that, I'd have to like hold the button down on my CD player and let it skip or like, you know, take the slider on the computer and slide it to where approximately where I thought the song started. And that just really, really irritated me. And subsequently, I kind of like stopped listening listening to it. And so I knew uh, when I was, you know, hatching my plan for Ad Astra Three that when the wind comes was going to be uh, the majority of that CD. It's 45 minutes long. You can only fit about 70, 72 minutes on a CD safely. So you're, you're you know, there's kind of like a limit to how much time you have so I knew you know right out of the gate that this song was going to be the meat and potatoes of this album and I thought that was kind of cool because technically there's only three songs on the record um, and you know Ad Astra 3 you know sticking with the, the numeral 3 kind of theme my favorite number or one of my favorite numbers um, so let's see the situation was I had decided that I was going to take at it or take uh, when the wind comes the, the, the 45 minute song and and 
when I put it on the CD, I would have it so that there would be continuous play. That you know, that is like there would be no breaks in between the, those four separate ideas. But there would be they would be separate tracks on the CD, so that when I wanted to hear the third part, I would just click to track number. Well, it would be track number four, and there there you go. But the whole thing was still seamless and one uh, long piece of music. So it, I retained its continuity, but I was able to break it up for you and for me to skip to these different sections. And um, that was that was kind of like a, I wouldn't say it was hard to learn how to do that, but it was like a process, you know, learning how to break a song up like that and keep it in continuous play and have it function on a, on a compact disc or as a wave file or whatever um, effectively. So that was a little, there was a little tricky for me. And uh, once I kind of devoted the time to figuring that out and I, and I did figure it out, I decided that, uh, okay, what I'll do is I'll go back to the very first song and I'll make the whole album continuous play. So there will be no breaks between any of the songs and you press play and there's continuous sound all the way to the end of the CD. Um, so that was the first time I ever had to do that, the first time I ever tried to do that, and it's with Ad Astra 3. So I thought that was kind of cool. And that allows me to kind of uh, go into each one of those separate sections and, and talk to you about those, because they're important, at least if you're interested in what I'm saying so far. Um, so we had When the Wind Comes, which is the main title, and that whole uh, four-part saga starts with section one, like part one. That section is called Yes. And... The reason that I called it yes, uh, hmm, let's see. The word yes is a very interesting word to me, and it always has been. Um, it's a small word, it's three letters, uh, it's an affirmation, it's affirming, um, it's a, a positive and optimistic word, and it's a very powerful word. Another reason why I decided to call that song Yes was because I was remembering that story about John Lennon and Yoko Ono, how they first met, and he, he went to a gallery, her art was on display there, and he climbed, climbed up the ladder, and he held up the magnifying glass, and then on the ceiling it said yes. You know, Sure, everybody is familiar with that story. At least I hope you are, because it's a good story. But um, I always kind of remembered that, and... Uh, I really, I think I really kind of understood the sentiment behind that piece of artwork, and uh, it really resonated with me. And I think that uh, that sentiment lives in a lot of my music and in uh, in a lot of my art. Um, and uh, so I, I, I thought, oh, that would be cool to to just call a song "Yes," and it would be like a tribute to that, you know, that that sense of optimism and happiness that she was trying to convey in that piece of art. All right, so now that I've explained to you my affinity for the word yes and why I chose that word, I can explain to you the story of how the song got its name. 
Now bear with me because this is kind of confusing. I'm going to try to explain it as clearly as I can and as quickly as I can. Now in the beginning, when I was first recording When the Wind Comes and, and writing it, that little introduction piece, that 12 minute piece, didn't have a name and it didn't have any lyrics. It was just music. And later on, when I decided to stretch that 12 minute piece into what I now call Two Hour Yes, I decided that uh, right at the one hour mark of Two Hour Yes, smack dab in the middle of the song, exactly in the middle, if you listen very carefully, you'll hear me say, yes, it's the only lyric in the song, and it's right at the one hour mark. So having said that, when it came time to assemble Ad Astra 3, and I had broken up the song When the Wind Comes into four different sections, I realized that I had never really named that first section. It was just the intro to When the Wind Comes. But then I remembered that I did turn that piece of music into Two Hour Yes. And there was a lyric, and there was a name. It just wasn't two hours anymore. It was only 12 minutes. So I called it Yes. Okay, so what's, what's interesting about that to me is that when I made the song in the beginning, I didn't name it. I then re-edited just that piece of music, and then I named it. And then when I had to go back to it, I now had a name for it. And I thought that that was kind of cool, that it started out one way, went to another, went over here, and then I, you know, I go back to the beginning again. And now that's how it got its name. And I thought that that was pretty cool. And uh, so that's why it's called Yes. Simple word, three-letter word, and has, you know, obviously, as you know now, it's not, it's not just some arbitrary name. Uh, there's meaning and intention behind it. Um, as there is with every single thing I have ever made. Uh, as you, And you'll find that out as time goes on. And I do more of these little talking bits. Um, I, I really do think about this stuff. It's not just meaningless music. I mean, it has meaning. Um, okay, so then we have the... Uh, okay, so we had yes. No, okay, I should say about yes. Okay. Yeah. Um... Uh, I had a little bit of extra time one day. Little little side story here about the song. Yes, um, I uh, on a Saturday I woke up and didn't have anything in particular to do, and I decided, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a piece of music like that song. Yes, I'm gonna take that little piece of music and I'm gonna loop that thing for like for like two hours and one see if I can do that. To uh, see if, if I post it, if anyone even cares, you know, if, if people like it or not. And a two-hour song, you know, of this repetitive thing. So really quick, you know, probably by lunchtime, I, I had the edits done, I had it done, and then I released it. And it was it was really kind of just like a goofy experiment. And uh, wow, I mean, that song that song just went went crazy. And I couldn't really figure out why, but, but people really liked it. And uh, subsequently, that p- 
piece of music is what that one that I made on that Saturday just goofing around that's the one that broke the Guinness World Record which is even more hilarious to me um, I can't even believe that you know and that was never the intention behind making that piece of music and I won't get into the whole Guinness thing because that's a whole separate story and I'll probably talk about it somewhere down the line because I think people might be interested but I'm not going to talk about it here but th- the point is is that uh, that little song yes that started out at three minutes wow you know it was kind of like it, I had no idea uh, what the future was for that little piece of music uh, so that's hilarious to me actually I can't believe it still can't believe it it's so funny and so silly um, okay so from uh, that song yes we go into the song the actual song when the wind comes kind of I kind of talked to you about that a little bit the you know how it came from the sun and the sky that other song and all that um, that's where the lyrics come from and, and the title comes from so we covered that um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else about um, when the wind comes I, I don't think there is right now that I can think of um, so that song that that section the second section uh, well we have the first section yes we have the second section which is when the wind comes and then that segues into the third section and that third section is called on axis now on axis is uh, I guess I can explain the title a little bit maybe um, on axis the idea was the in my mind was uh, the, the earth on its axis that the world turns and things change and you are you you're turning away from something you're you know you're in this case in that song I'm I express that I'm kind of turning away from uh, well, I won't get into that. I'll let you kind of read it and decide for yourself what I'm talking about. But the point was this idea of being on axis and, and turning away. And turning, rotating away from something and into a new thing. Um, a new way of thinking. Um, again, okay. Around the time that I was writing that song, I was like on a Dylan kick. And uh, I'll just talk about that briefly, really quick. I think it's actually pretty funny but like for years I I could not stand Bob Dylan's music I mean I just could not stand it I thought his voice was terrible I couldn't understand why everybody liked what he was doing and then one day I decided you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna really give him a try I'm gonna go back to the beginning of his career and I'm gonna listen to his music and uh and, and see if I can like if I can find something in it if I can see what it is that people uh, have latched onto with this guy so I went to uh, my nearest public library because you know we all should support our public libraries anyway so I went and got the first three albums that Dylan released and right from the very first CD right from the very first song you know on the first album, I think it was the Freewheeling Bob Dylan. Uh, I got it instantly. I mean, it was it was it was awesome. I mean, it was absolutely awesome, and it sounded nothing like the material that I was familiar with. And I, 
ah, it was like it changed everything for me. And so I always kind of laugh a little bit because I went from one extreme to the other really in about 30 seconds. Like, oh, I just totally got it. Now it's like one of my favorite albums. And, you know, at that time when, I, when that happened, I was, you know, still writing songs. And it, there is no way that you can hear Bob Dylan and not in some way have to emulate what you're hearing or feeling. I'm convinced of that. So that little story is done. And so uh, I wrote this song called On Axis. And I think I'll just go right ahead and play a little bit of that song right here. honestly say and I probably has something to do with that whole Dylan thing that uh, I really do feel that they're probably some of the best lyrics that I've ever written because when I hear it now I realize that that song and the lyrics to that song really kind of encapsulate everything I'm trying to say through all of my music and all of my art in one way or another that that uh it's, it's almost a mission statement. I mean, it's that, it's that concise, and I think it's that well-written. And because of that, it's made reappearances, and it will continue probably to make reappearances uh, in the future uh, on different CDs or in different uh, pieces of music that I'm working on. So with On Axis, uh, even when I hear it now, I just think to myself... I really hit the bullseye with that one. I suppose uh, another story that I could tell you about um, On Axis, there's actually two. Um, now, uh, I used to be in a band called Slow Bob, and I have some of that music available on YouTube. that You can check it out if you want to. I was the drummer in that band, and uh, it was a very uh, good band. We were very... Uh, tight and very efficient and uh, a lot of the material that we did I feel was well written and well constructed and the only the only problem with that was and, and the reason why that I'm bringing it up now is because on the end of our CD that we had released we released one CD it was called and through the order uh, the, the closing track on the album was, uh, unlike the previous songs on the record, it was recorded live in the studio, uh, kind of uh, with, with a very loose construction. I mean, we had 
performed the entire CD live, but the song at the end was kind of like an experiment and kind of an open-ended ambition. So years later, listening to that, I was really, I really was kind of displeased with it, and I really felt that the concept was good. It just, it could have been so much stronger. And I imagined if I could take that song and change it somehow, what would I do with that piece of music, or what would I do with that structure that that song had? So uh, when I was doing On Axis, I was trying to reconstruct that song by Slow Bob in a pipe choir context. And so that's why the song on the pipe choir debut CD, the version of the song on that CD, starts out the way it does and then it, you know, explodes into this bombastic, booming, loud thing. And uh, that's, that's what I was going for. That was one thing I would, would want to mention, is that it was really an experiment um, going back into my past and taking a piece of music that was from an entirely different group that I was in and bringing it into the future and and kind of changing it to what I think it could have been. The second thing that I want to mention about the music for On Axis, um, there's a song by Dave Matthews called Don't Drink the Water. And I really like a lot of his music and, and his drummer is just smoking, okay? In the world of drummers, he's like, the king okay um but they have this song called don't drink the water i'm sure most of you are familiar with it and i really love the song but the problem with it in my book was the song stays the same for a very very long time and it's good and everything but then at the end it's like there's like a climax and you have to wait until the very 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 end of the song to kind of like get the payoff I had wished that they had done it sooner in that song because it's just so compelling. So what I did was, when I was doing On Axis and mashing it up with the slow bop thing, I was also kind of pulling it into this context of like, okay, I'm going to go to that that payoff section and don't drink the water, and I'm going to see what chords they're playing. And then... I'm going to write a song around those chords. So you get the payoff right away, like right in the beginning, you know. And and it carries over like through the whole song, you know, like it's, you stay in it. You don't have to wait for it. It's there and it lasts for a little while. I feel that it's worth mentioning here because I really feel like it demonstrates the playful nature of my creative process. I don't know. So there you go. There's a little bit about that. And uh, so as of August 2016, I've released four different versions of the song on Axis. Uh, The first time it was released was on the debut CD for Pipe Choir uh, when when I first wrote it. Uh, The second time was on the PC-1 uh, wilderness album and uh, the third time was in the three hour song I have called In the Garden and the fourth time now is uh, here on Ad Astra 3 and so from On Axis it goes into the song which closes the 
When the Wind Comes saga uh, goes into a piece of music that I called Ocean Tapping. And uh, Ocean Tapping, the, the idea or the, the, what I was going for there was I knew in the beginning I had a 12-minute piece. It was called Yes, and it was this kind of, uh, kind of chilled piece of music that eased you in. It was repetitive. Uh, you know, it was conducive to thinking, uh, not being distracted. Like you kind of get into a zone. And I knew that after, like what I, at least what I considered the intensity of when the wind comes and on axis, that the storm would pass, things kind of simmer down, and, and that's what ocean tapping was meant to kind of be, was like the storm going away, and now, you know, the aftermath or the, the calm after the storm. And uh, I had considered taking yes and just taking that whole piece of music and just you know copying it right to the end of the song and there you go book ended nice and tidy you know it starts the same way it ended and then I decided no there's a better way so um what I did was make a whole entire new little piece of music which wasn't hard to do um and kind of just go wherever it took me to to go wherever I was led you know so uh you know, you hear the ocean waves, you hear uh, the seagulls, which I can mention really quick. I was particularly proud of because I had to simulate seagulls on my guitar. And I remember at the time I was doing that for ocean tapping, uh, I was kind of like overly concerned that they would not sound like seagulls. And then people wouldn't get what I was going for, which <laughs> makes me laugh a little bit now just even thinking about it because it's so stupid but because it sounds like seagulls I mean I'm you know I hear it now and it, it, it does the job as far as I'm concerned it does but I just remember being really like uptight about that and re- trying and trying and trying and make sure really really make sure and uh, uh, something like so <laughs> thoroughly unimportant really you know but you know, really thinking about it, like it matters, you know, more than anything else. Um, and then uh, I, so that that was where the the ocean comes, you know, from the the the, the title, ocean. You now for the tapping part, uh, the tapping part. If if you listen to the music, you'll hear uh, uh, just periodically. I think I did it even randomly. It's not like on a a click track. I just kind of with my finger, you know, my eyes closed hit the note, wait a little bit, hit the note, wait a little bit, hit the note, just like where I felt the note should go, you hear this like boom, boom, and it was like this, this tapping, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what it uh, made me think of, because I was tapping it with my finger, you know, on, on the keyboard, so ocean tapping, bam, name cool one word not two words but the t would be capitalized in tapping so it's two separate words mashed into each other and that falls into the whole i love playing with names and language and all that kind of stuff so i was happy with that and uh so that's ocean tapping now ocean tapping uh segues into uh reach out return to me Oh man, reach out, return to me. Well, hmm, let's see. What would I say? 
Well, I can tell you really quick where the name comes from. The name comes from another song, once again, that I had written a while ago. And uh, it was kind of sitting in the vault, you know, sitting there collecting dust. Um, it was called Return. It was called, it was called Reach Out to Me. And I'll go ahead and play a little bit of that song for you right here. good song it's decent just never went back to finish it maybe i will someday but there it sat and uh so i sat down i said okay now i'll make a new piece of music and and uh so i started uh, putting down beds and started the whole process and once again got it to a certain point you know with the music and the chord changes in the sections or whatever and then i started to scat vocals over it once again, you know, singing with the soul first. And um, that's what I did. And, and then in that process, these lyrics started to pop out. This, this song that I'd written a while ago and kind of forgotten about started to reemerge. And it fit really well. And at the time, I wrote the song. It had like a meaning way back in the day. And when I pulled it into what would now be Reach Out, Return to Me... Um, I, you know, I, I was kind of wondering while I, when, while I was doing it, what the hell am I talking about? It doesn't make any sense. It wasn't until much later, after the song had been released, and I hadn't heard it for a while, and then I finally did hear it later, I realized what I was actually singing about. And I, I know what I'm talking about, at least I think I do. And... I won't get into that because the world's not ready for what I'm actually talking about in that song. But um, it was kind of cool how that can happen, I felt. And uh, I guess I can say, too, about Reach Out Return to Me. There's a, there's a lot to say, that I could say um, about that particular song. Uh, let's see. Um, I could say there was a vocal line that... I uh, absolutely hated. There's the part at the end where I was saying, uh, "Stretch your hand across the void, you know, reach out to me." I mean, the lyrics weren't bad, but it just was like I would hear that come, that part start, and I would just cringe. I just I just hated it. I hated it. And uh, you know, sometimes you just don't get it right. I'm going with what I think is good at the time, and then. Wow, you know, sometimes you're just way off. Um, and I thought, man, this is my opportunity to like, go back and scrap that part of the song and at least replace it with something else. So I did. I, I called the session up again in my system, edited that horrible part out, and I instead just decided to 
uh, loop the chorus part until it faded out. I mean, it was kind of like a quick fix, but oh, so much better than what was there before. Um, so uh, the version of the song on Ad Astra 3 is different than the original version that I released, um, which is kind of interesting, I suppose, kind of cool. A uh, little bit of information. Um, let's see. Oh, <laughs> the guitar line for Reach Out, Return to Me. Uh, that's funny. Uh, I, I remember when I was recording the guitar line, what I was trying to go for <laughs> was uh, John Frusciante's guitar sound for uh, Under the Bridge, like that clean... Uh, Hendrix kind of sound, you know, and uh, <laughs> I that's what I was shooting for. But man, when I listen to it now, I mean, at the time I thought, wow, this is this is pretty close. This is this is pretty good. I'm, I'm close, you know, and I listen to it now. And it doesn't sound anything. <laughs> doesn't sound anything like that to me. So uh, there, there, there again, another example of how you hear something initially and how you hear it much later can be two very different things. So whenever I hear that guitar line, I think it sounds good in its own right and in its own way, but I laugh to myself because it's like I totally missed the, the, the mark there. It's not, and not at all what I was going for. And then, you know, there it is. It's done. It's, it's, it's there. Um, okay, let's see. Another thing I could say about Reach Out, Return to Me. Uh, which is kind of cool. So I'll talk about it. Um, there was the jumping off point for that piece of music. And I, I remember this now for reach out, return to me was like a conscious, uh, maneuver on my part. Um, I have an old Tascam four track recorder with, you know, cassette tape recorder. And you know, when I first started to learn, uh, the art of home recording, uh, it was what I kind of cut my teeth on. And, you know, it served its purpose and everything, but oh my gosh, you know, the sound quality is so terrible. But it was good for getting ideas and sketches down and things like that. And I had amassed, over the period of time I was using it, uh, a pretty large collection of song ideas. I have to say, when I look at it, I'm looking at it right now, I was pretty busy. I was doing a lot of stuff. I was pretty excited about recording and having that opportunity and learning how to do that. So anyway, I decided when I wanted to do uh, this new PC3 song, this new 20-minute song, that what I would do is go back into those old four-track sessions that I did and kind of just like skim through them, see if there was you know maybe a few tracks that that stood out to me as something worth uh, working on and updating and you know devoting time to and I probably found maybe five pieces or so of music that were very short four track horrible recordings but song seeds you know enough to start from and from that five I picked one that was uh, called Midnight that was the name of the this sketch that I did and I'll play a little bit of that for you so you can hear what that four track recording sounds like
And uh, so that was the jumping off point. So, uh, and then that's what I did. I, I recreated what I heard on the cassette tapes or on the four track and, um, you know, pulled it into this new piece of music. And that was the foundation, the, the original foundation for that song, which I thought was cool because I, I at the time I had not really done a whole lot of that. And after I did reach out, return to me, it was only after that that I started to actually see the value in, in going back and mining some of my older and crude ideas and, and updating them and giving them a facelift, you know. I can't really think of anything else right now that I would want to say about Ad Astra 3. I'm going to take a sip of my coffee, if you don't mind. Because my voice is getting a little raspy. Um, I hope that you listen to Ad Astra 3, and I hope that you enjoy it. And if you do, I hope that this little bit of talking will maybe uh, be enjoyable as well. Um, I'll admit, uh, you know, I was a little reluctant to do this kind of thing because I wasn't quite sure if it would be perceived as like a vanity exercise or if it would be perceived how I intended it which was, you know, uh, I know like for myself and for my wife too, actually, we both kind of enjoy uh, the extras, like on on DVDs. We're we're sometimes the extras and the bonus features and things like that are more interesting than the featured content. And oftentimes, if that's not the case, they at least augment the featured content. So enjoying that myself and seeing the value in that myself uh, I decided to do this kind of thing because it's what I would want so um, there you go it's my little gift to you hopefully you'll take it in the spirit of that and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy the CD because I worked really hard on it and I put a lot of thought into everything that went on it Um, if you like this little bit of talking that I'm doing uh, the good news is is that uh, I'll be doing more more of these. I'll, I'm going to cover at least all of the CDs that I've released uh, up until this point. And uh, I'll, I'll take it from there, kind of see how it goes. If people seem to like it, then uh, maybe it's something I'll do for every album that I release in the future as well. So uh, this is Mike Bostwick from Pipe Choir Records. You've been listening to Snowflake 33, and I appreciate you listening to Snowflake 33. And uh, I'll sign off for now. And remember, folks, if you want to keep what you've got, you got to give it away. Thank you. <laughs>